0: Right, so most of you have heard the story. My wife has heard this a 1,000 times, so add this to 1,001. The summer of 2001, I served a missionary pastor who his focus was to organize uh, church groups in a border town in South Texas across over to a, a border town in Mexico called Reynosa. I was asked that summer, i just graduated high school, my parents would not let me leave home until I turned 18 because my birthday is a June birthday. And I was asked to serve that whole summer as his worship leader to lead these different teams who were coming in from across America, lead them in morning devotionals, lead them in evening devotionals. The first week of my time in Mexico was anticlimactic, yet it was so full of drama. The missionary pastor accidentally booked two worship leaders that week. This worship leader that came in, it wasn't just him. Like me, it was just solo, just me and my guitar. But he brought in his whole worship team. And he was just there for the week, whereas I was there for the whole summer. So the the missionary pastor made the decision that he would serve and his team would serve for the first week, and then I would get the rest of the summer. That's a pretty good deal, right? But recently turned 18-year-old Joe was sulky, And depressed, I had no idea how, God, can I serve you if I can't sing and I can't play guitar, right? This lasted about three or four days in Mexico. I remember one morning, um, we coordinated the team, we loaded up into vans, we went across the border, and the task that day, um, we had coordinated with a local church in Reynosa and its pastor, and his family was in need of a new home. So throughout the summer, different church groups were coming in, and we were just building up and rebuilding a home. So one morning, we went to the site of the home that we were building for this Mexican pastor. And our missions pastor pulled me aside when we arrived on the site that morning. And he told me that, he's like, Joe, you are not going to be helping out this morning. You're not going to be building this house with the team this morning. Now, those of you who know me now, as 40-year-old Joe. (laughs) You know, like, you don't want a tool in my hand to build a house for you anyway, right? Right, like, my thumb hurts from just doing some work yesterday. Instead, he asked me if, by myself, if I would paint an existing outhouse. For the next 10 minutes or so, Pastor Rick reproved me. He saw my sulking, He saw my pity party. He saw my selfishness. Woe is me, my pride, my immaturity. He called out my feelings that life is about me. Mission is about me. And you know what? He was right. He was so right. It took an eight-hour day of painting an existing outhouse by myself to hammer those words into my heart with each stroke that I took of the paintbrush. I was an 18-year-old American Christian. I was selfish. Life was about me, right? Life was about my gifts, what I can do, not Jesus. And here's what I began to learn. God reproves to restore. And that's the main point today. God reproves your heart to restore your heart. You want restoration, you must open your heart up to reproof from the Lord. I should have already known this, that God hurts to heal. But 18-year-old Joe needed to experience it firsthand. Remember, it isn't enough for me to tell you that filet is better than drive-thru burger, right? I can tell you that all day long. It's not until you cut into the steak and it cuts like butter that you know indeed that filet is better than drive-thru burger. God began to teach me through the things that I would suffer. Throughout Proverbs, Solomon has taught us about two kinds of people, right? The wise and the fool. That's the recurring motifs. The wise do this. The fool does this. And the different types of fools. And today, we're going to learn about a particular type of fool. God used Pastor Rick to teach me just how big of a fool I was. And God continues to do this work in me throughout the years, and still today in you too as his body, through his word, and through each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So Proverbs 9 addresses a particular kind of fool, and this fool is called the scoffer. A scoffer mocks. A scoffer shows contempt to any person who presents a point of view about their lives that challenges their own. A scoffer rejects the reproof, rejects the exhortation of another, because scoffers must have things their way. Scoffers must be in control of their lives. So any point of view that challenges theirs, they're not going to listen to it, and they're going to push it away. God used Pastor Rick's reproof to show me that I was a scoffer. I had been a Christian for three years then, but there were parts of my heart that had not yet been broken by the gospel. And I believe that though we're sitting in churches for days, weeks, years, or maybe even decades, that there's still parts of our hearts that still scoff at the Word of God. Today we're going to see what the scoffer is. We're going to contrast it with the wise. Then we're going to see how Solomon provides us with wisdom and how do you deal with the scoffer. And then we're going to look at our own hearts to see if we indeed are the scoffer ourselves. That's where we're going today, okay? You ready to jump in? Let's do it. Proposition. We're going to see that God grows those who fear him through godly reproof and through instruction. That is the way. The first step to wisdom is to acknowledge that you are a fool, but this just feels counterintuitive to human flesh. That feels counterintuitive to everything that American culture has taught us. Through our families, through public school education, you are independent. You are in control. But the gospel says you're not. God is king. You are not. The gospel says the way up is down. American culture says the way up is up. and That makes sense, right? How do you get up? You go up, not down. But a wise life begins by confessing that indeed that you are a fool. That is why many people can attend churches in America, consider themselves to be religious, but they aren't Christians. To be a Christian means that you know that you are a sinner. To be a Christian means that you know that God is right, and you are wrong about everything. Being a Christian means, like Dr. Keller says, that you've experienced this, That you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. And you are more loved and accepted than you ever could dare to hope. Amen? Amen? To the wise, this is a comfort. But to the fool, this is an irritation. This is an obstacle. And this is a hindrance. So we ask today, how does a person come to know that they are a fool? Solomon says, the person must be reproved. That's why here at Heritage, the preaching and the teaching of Scripture has two aims, and I prayed for it this morning. One aim is to encourage those who are faint-hearted, but then it's also to exhort and challenge and push those who think they're good. They think that they're right. They got everything all right, nailed down. They don't need any prayer requests. They're good, except for the unspoken, right? Biblical preaching and teaching should reveal the condition of your heart. At any time, any place, every Sunday, every Wednesday, you want to know how you're doing with your life. See how your heart is responding by what's coming out of God's word. Some of you know this, and some of you have felt this, right? To me, it's like a burning sensation in the soul that no pepsi can control. That is why some of us we check out physically, or emotionally, or spiritually during our gatherings, because. You can't listen to and accept a point of view that challenges how you want to live. Insofar so far as God will align with what you want, you're good with God, and you're good with religion, and you're good with church, and you're good with these people called Christians. But as soon as they contradict what you want to do, I'm going to stiff arm you. Solomon says, that's the scoffer. That is what the scoffer is and does. But Solomon has a promise today, and here it is. The wise, those who acknowledge, yes, I am a fool, we will grow by reproof and by instruction. Once again, your flesh and American culture will tell you, reject those that challenge you. Reject those who say something to you that contradicts what you want to do with your life. But to be a Christian, you know that the gospel challenges your life. And the gospel calls out your life. This is how the wise are restored. This is how the wise are healed. It isn't about just merely praying, God, just restore me. God, just heal me. It's saying, God, bruise me, then bless me. A scoffer rejects God's word and authority because he or she at the end of the day knows better than God. Let me make one connection to something I hope that Vernon said. I had a hard time getting the signal last week during the gathering. Um, but I hope that Vernon made about fatherhood last week. American culture teaches you, you are autonomous. You are independent. No one can challenge you. No one can exhort you. No one can reprove you. The gospel says challenging, exhorting, reproving, through God's word, is actually a sign, a token, a symbol of his love for you. You should have heard something like that. Our culture says the opposite. They say love is just accepting you for whatever you say and do. Love is acceptance. Love is tolerance. But the gospel says that isn't love. You being quiet while you watch your loved one kill themselves is indifference. It's not true love. It's indifference. It's cowardly. It's self-love before the lover and the loved. The sign that the best of all fathers loves you isn't that he remains silent while you live a wasted life. It's him speaking. It's him moving to action. It's him disciplining. It's him instructing. And American culture has taught you the opposite, and your flesh loves it. God reproves those that he loves. And this helps you and I make sense of the cross of Jesus, right? One of the most mind-blowing questions you have to answer is, why did God have to wound and kill his son? And this is one of the 10,000 reasons. To teach you that restoration comes from reproving. That healing comes via hurting. This helps us make sense also of one of our responsibilities as adopted brothers and sisters in Christ, right? When Pastor Rick exhorted me that morning in Mexico, it wasn't a sign of his displeasure. It wasn't a sign of God's displeasure with me. He died for me. It's actually the opposite, but our flesh actually feels the other way, right? We see things upside down. It was a sign of God's pleasure, any sign of God's love for me in his son. And I pray today that you would just take maybe one more step maybe one baby step, I pray towards a wise life by acknowledging that you may be a scoffer, just like me, and that you will put yourself in a position to experience true love by taking the, the reproof of the Father through instruction and through his word. That's what today is about. So let's get to our first point. And I hope that you see this, that from this that you are to recognize your heart response to the reproofs of godly instruction. We first need to see what Solomon says about the scoffer so that you can check your heart, check how your heart responds when you're exhorted. You cannot assume, Heritage, that just because you attend church in America where there's no threat No one got onto you, most likely, or threatened you to come into the sanctuary today, like in the East. You cannot assume that just because you attend church and you consider yourself to be religious, that your heart is just impervious to this. We cannot assume this, ever. All it takes, as we've discussed on Wednesday nights, all it takes is one moment of drift one moment of deviation, when your heart rejects exhortation, your heart rejects God's word, when your life doesn't reflect God's desires and you are well on your way to being a scoffer. Let's take a look at verse eight. Solomon says, do not reprove a scoffer or he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Godly instruction will either encourage or exhort the hearer. It depends on heart posture. It depends on the condition of your heart. Solomon says, reprove a scoffer, and he'll hate you. Ironically, reprove we'll a wise man by which you think, what more can I add to this person's life? But ironically, you reprove the wise man, he loves you even more. That's like the tension, Right? You wouldn't expect the wise to need reproof, but the wise still need it. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years. You still need to be reproved, right? That's the wisdom of Solomon. Our nature sets us up to think otherwise. The scoffer resents reproof. They are actually insulted by any points of view that challenges the way that they want to live. So right now, we got to ask ourselves this question of our heart. You have to ask yourself, heart, are you that scoffer? Do you hate or belittle or justify or excuse or insult or mock God, His Word, His people, because they present something that opposes what you want to do and how you want to live? What's that heart reaction in that moment? So let's consider for a moment how we should approach a scoffer. Verse 7, Solomon says, He who corrects a scoffer will get dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man will get insults for himself. So we have to ask this question. Do we approach the scoffer? Do we tell the scoffer what's going on so they don't continue? That's a difficult question, right, church? Relationally, with that scoffer that you love, do you say something? At first glance, it may appear, if you looked at this verse isolated, that Solomon says, don't correct the scoffer, right? But this verse doesn't explicitly say that. Solomon wants Jewish boys and Jewish girls. This is the wisdom of Hebrew culture. This is what they were raised in. And they wanted children to know. I wish kindergarten taught you this. Wanted young Jewish boys and girls to know that if you correct a scoffer, you may get dishonor back. You may. Solomon wants to make the wise aware that if you reprove the scoffer, you may get insults back. But doesn't this fit beautifully with our Lord's life? Right? Because Jesus is the embodiment of Solomon's wisdom. Jesus is the one that gave the wisdom to Solomon. By and large, Jesus was challenged He challenged and confronted scoffers. People who thought they were living right. They were good. They were leaders. They've been doing this for a while. He called out the self-righteous. He called out those who attempted to portray a hypocritical religion. And how was Jesus treated at the end? He took on dishonor and insult. But not only that. He took on death. Jesus was mocked and insulted and hated and crucified for challenging scoffers. So ask this question, where would you be right now? Imagine a world for a moment. Where would you be if Jesus did not take on the reproof and the discipline that was meant for you? Where would you be? Where would I be? Dead in the ditch, right? Isn't that the phrase? At the bottom line, you would not be a Christian, and I would not be a Christian if Jesus did not take on the reproof and the discipline that I deserve and that you deserve. The very essence of a wise life is that you're constantly being challenged and you're constantly being encouraged by God's word so you can make on-the-spot life corrections as you go through this Godward life to the eschaton. That's the wise life. When you stop doing this, You could be that scoffer. Solomon is not saying by this verse that Christians should never correct and reprove scoffers in their lives. That would actually be a sign towards indifference. Or a sign that you pursue self-love over real love. God disciplined Jesus. The cross points to Jesus taking on correction, taking on discipline that was intended for you and for me. Solomon is saying, be prepared when you have to reprove the scoffer. Be prepared for how they may respond. You may not get what you are looking for, but at the end of the day, we will arrive at what God is looking for. You may be rejected, Belittled, mocked, insulted, or even hated by them. But you must remember that Jesus first, before you experience this, Jesus first experienced it and took it upon his shoulders. Jesus knows how it feels to be insulted by the scoffer. Remember at the cross, they mocked him? You who said who would destroy the temple in three days. Psh, Get yourself down from the cross. We'll believe you, scoffing after scoffing after mocking after mocking. Hours of it. Jesus calls his church to be his body, amen? He is not physically here right now, but you are, hands and feet and eyes and ears. We are the body of Christ, And therefore, at times, you and I must step in and reprove the scoffer. This is actually the sign of love, the token of affection. Saying and doing nothing is a sign of selfishness on your part. And indifference, both for Jesus and for the people in your life that you claim to love. And it may just be that you love them because they represent something about you. Not that it's true Christ-centered love. Love isn't letting a person say and do whatever they want, even to their own detriment. Love is broken over the loved one's life, loving them so much that they will take on insult. Heap on the mocking, the belittling. Heap on the hatred. That's what God did for us in Jesus, right? And that is what Jesus commanded us to do in Matthew 18:15. As adopted brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see each other fall, we move into a season of private, personal exhortation towards him. And haven't we spoken about this many, many times over the months here at Heritage on Wednesday nights, right? Your response to exhortation will show you the condition of your heart. Jesus tells for the person who is doing it that you will know if you have a brother or a sister by how they respond. Your response proves if you believe that you know better than God in whatever the situation is. Your response proves if you believe you're truly a part of God's family or if you just do stuff for them. Because there's a big difference. Because the Church of Christ doesn't need a licensed, I don't know, music player. The Church of Christ needs brothers and sisters in Christ who are in it for the long haul in this chapter for Christ and his mission in this community. So what is your heart response to the reproofs of godly instruction? Do you resent it? Do you avoid it? Does it make you itchy? Do you find a way to justify yourself? That's me, usually. Do you find a way to incorporate it into your life and make that on-the-spot course correction that we call sanctification? As a Christian in heritage, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And do you love it that they're watching you? Do you love it that they're praying for you? Do you love it that they are willing to take on insults for your best in Christ? Do you love that? Now we're going to shift and we're going to see how you are to respond when you are reproved by God's word. And here's our application. You are to focus on that long-term reward. Beyond the pain, beyond the hurt, beyond the sting of your pride. you got to look beyond that to a long-term reward when you are reproved by God's Word. The Christian is reproved by godly instruction to be restored. That's the idea. Reproved to be restored, hurt to be healed. The godly Christian receives godly reproof to make life corrections on the spots. In many areas of life, we accept the idea that healing comes from hurting. Let's just think of one together for a moment. Think of a surgeon. Surgeons operate, right? Many of you have gone through multiple seasons of surgeries in the past couple of years. Surgeons operate. Surgeons cause pain, not just in the moments, but in hours, days, weeks, months after. Things never feel quite the same after a surgery. They cut, they remove. The pain that they inflict runs deep, and you have felt that for, right? Yet you have taken it. You bear it. You're not angry at the surgeon for the pain that he or she caused you, are you? Why not? Because you get the principle of this application. You're focusing on the long-term reward to help make sense of what you're feeling right now, Right? We know the purpose behind the surgeon's pain that he or she inflicts. Surgeon's hurt to heal. We put the long-term goal in our minds to survive the short-term pain. That is the wisdom that we need to apply to God when we are disciplined and reproved by His Word, through His Spirit, and through His people. Jesus called Himself the Great Physician. Amen? The surgery that Jesus experienced on the cross outweighs any procedure that you have ever experienced. To excise the sins and the sorrows and the sufferings of his people, past, present, and future, is much worse than any surgery that we could ever go through. You should be more willing for Jesus to perform surgery on you than any MD out there, because Jesus took on death for you, and that's one thing the MD will not do for you. Jesus tells us that he did not take on flesh to seek out those who think they're good, consider themselves to be religious, God-fearing people. They think they're living and doing good in this life. Jesus came for you and I, the sinner, We who are fully aware of our brokenness and our folly and our lostness, we must remember that our ultimate hurt fell upon Jesus instead of us. We must remember that God poured out his wrath on someone who did not deserve it, his beloved son instead of us, and for us. When Jesus suffered, he focused on the long term as well. Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us that Jesus set joy before him as the scoffers scoffed him, as the mockers mocked him and insulted him. Jesus set joy before him as his father laid the greatest discipline, the greatest smackdown to be our substitute. When you are reproved by God, you must remember Jesus. It's not a cliché. It's our strategy as heritage Christians. You must remember and think on that same long-term joy that Jesus set before him when he was being disciplined for you. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Solomon says, Give instruction to a wise man. He'll still be the wiser. Teach a righteous man. He'll increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Reprove a wise man, instruct a wise man, teach a wise man, and he will love you for it. And once again, ironically, you will feel, what can I add to those that I consider to be wise? But the wise are just like, let me have it. Tell it to me. Tell me how it is. Exhort the wise, he or she will become all the wiser. The wise understand that increasing in wisdom means learning where they have been foolish. Because they know if they have blind spots that only you can see. That's why marriage is the greatest mirror. And that's why church family is one of the greatest mirrors as well. Why can a wise man do this? Solomon repeats the motif of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wise accept that they are always in the presence of God. Yet it isn't an obstacle to what they want to do. It isn't a hindrance to what they want to do. Oh, God is here. I can't do what I really want to do. When you fear God, you begin to understand that God hurts to heal. When you fear God, you begin to see that God's discipline actually isn't a sign of his displeasure, but the opposite. It's a sign of his love. For a moment, I want you to consider the wisdom of Jeremiah in one of his greatest sufferings on this subject, to which we go to Lamentations 3. Verses 31 and 32, Jeremiah says, The Lord will not reject forever. You may feel rejected right now, but he does not reject forever. If he causes grief, wait, wait, God causes bad things? You have to have that theology of suffering. If he causes grief, he will have compassion according to his abundance, loving kindness. Jeremiah wrote this beautiful set of sentences in the middle of his hurts. Jeremiah watched the completion of a failed ministry. God called him, go to Jerusalem, warn them. Warn them destruction is coming if they don't change their ways. They did not listen to him. So Jeremiah literally watched as Babylon sacked Rome and destroyed Solomon's temple. Jerusalem was the scoffer. God sent his word through Moses. He sent judges to bring them back in. He sent prophets to warn them time and time again, generation after generation, and they rejected it all. Jeremiah saw all of this to its completed end, the destruction of Zion. This verse set of verses, has been a balm for my soul. Since my mom passed away in August 2021, the Holy Spirit has set my gaze on Lamentations 3 and has kept it there still today. If you want to know, there are two ribbon markers in my preaching Bible. And I don't know if you ever see me looking at my Bible before I come up to preach. I'm not preparing notes. I'm not getting the last thing in my head. I'm reading this. That's That's the other one. And it's been in there since August 2021. As Americans, we tend to think that discipline is a sign of displeasure. He doesn't like me. That's why he's getting on to me. We reject the idea that the truest sign of real love is for the lover to call out the loved when they fall out of step of God's best. I struggled with this deeply when my mom passed. Did my mom pass of the very thing she was most afraid of because God was displeased with me? At this particular time with church pain, house transition, because God is displeased with me? God took me from Lamentations 3 straight to the cross, beeline to the cross. Over time, Jeremiah's wisdom reproved me and began to restore me, just like it promises. Hurt is not a sign of God's rejection of you. It's not. Jesus is the sign of God's ultimate rejection and ultimate compassion in our lives. Yes, God causes grief. I just came down off the mountain, Heritage, and i got to tell you, we are going to do a theology of suffering for you. And you will say, why? because we still struggle to think that when we are hurting, God is displeased with us, and we need to be reproved for it. Yes, God providentially allows hurts, even blows of godly instruction. Don't give up. Don't give up. They are signs of His abundant compassion and loving kindness. As much as God causes grief, He will also equally and abundantly give compassion. Do you see it? This begins to set up that long-term reward that Jesus himself was fixed upon as he suffered on the cross and that what you are to keep in mind when you are suffering. What do you think held Jesus together on the cross? Because we heard his cry, right? Right? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What held Jesus together? Jesus took on the full measure of God's displeasure and his wrath, but also his love. What held Jesus together is that the Father disciplines those that he loves. Jesus took on the Father's ultimate discipline, so you can have something in mind as you go through your present sufferings and when you are reproved. He set one joy before him, that the Father's wrath, the Father's discipline, wasn't a sign of displeasure, but of abundant love and kindness. His heart was set on resurrection. So let's focus on one more element of the long-term reward, our final verse verse 11. Solomon says that by me, by reproof, by wisdom through reproof, that's the me, your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. Jesus died in his 30s. So, what does Solomon mean by this? Solomon says that by exhorting and reproving, days and years of life will be added, multiplied to the wise. How many days? how many years are added. In the ultimate sense, it's eternal. Eternal days. Eternal life. God reproves those He loves. God disciplines, as the best of all fathers, His adopted sons and daughters in Christ. Our adopted older, elder brother or elder statesman took on the brunt of this discipline. And this hurt is used by God for your healing, for my healing, which is why Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus, says this, by his wounds you will be healed. This reproof is used by God for your restoration. Suffering will yield growth. Minus three will equal plus five. It doesn't make mathematical sense, but God's economy is different than that. The wise knows this, but the scoffer rejects this because he or she cannot handle that they are wrong. But God grows those who embrace this. He uses his word, and he uses his people for your good and for my good. By reproof and by instruction, years are added, Eternal years. So as heritage Christians, here's what we resolve. We must become aware of spiritual drift. It just takes one service. It takes one quiet time. It takes one private conversation with another brother and sister in Christ at heritage. Just one instance for drift to happen. And it begins when we scoff that godly instruction that we are receiving. Instead, we will resolve to open up our lives to his word and to his people. Out of what Jesus took upon himself for us, we will gladly take on these little hurts, these little stings for him. And we also resolve that as heritage Christians, you and I must accept that we have a ministry. We have a ministry of encouraging each other, and we have a ministry of exhorting each other. This is our ministry as church members. And when we are suffering, we will look to that same suffering of Jesus and that same joy, that same long-term joy that Jesus focused on, that his Father disciplines those that he loves. Amen? And that is God's word for you this day.